Rocketman is a new biopic about queer rock icon Elton John. It is in many ways a typical rise and fall, dangers of fame kind of rock star biopic, but there is a difference. That's right, this is a full-on jukebox musical on film, complete with dance numbers and a drug orgy that doubles as a dream ballet. And star Taron Edgerton doesn't just lip-sync, he actually sings. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Glenn Weldon. We're talking Rocket Man, sequins and feathers, sunglasses and four-inch platform shoes on this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour, so don't go away. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sub-Zero Refrigeration, Wolf Cooking, and Cove Dishwashing. Here's their head demonstration chef, Joel Chesbro, on the power of food to create moments worth savoring. For me, the memories that I have around food, a lot of them come from the sense of smell. And I think that's something that we as humans kind of share is that that direct line of sense to memory. To learn how Sub-Zero, Wolf & Cove can help you embrace every meal and moment, visit subzero-wolf.com. Welcome back. You just met NPR Music Stephen Thompson. Also with us is writer and comedian Guy Branham, author of the PCHH-approved and Weldon-endorsed My Life as a Goddess. Welcome back, Guy. Uh, good to be back, Glenn. My Life as a Goddess, available in paperback June 18th. There you so go. everybody, <laughs> Look at that. save up $7. Professional you. author talking. All right. So let's start with the film itself. Look, comparisons to the film Bohemian Rhapsody are inevitable and necessary for a host of reasons we'll get to. But let's focus on this film as a piece of entertainment. Stephen, what'd you think? You know, early on in this movie, they throw in a few kind of arty flourishes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, gosh, are these necessary? (laughs) And then as the movie was progressing, I thought... Oh, they're absolutely necessary in part because if you don't have arty flourishes, you have the most boilerplate VH1 behind the music story of uh, meteoric rise followed by nightmare descent into booze and pills Mm -hmm. that you could possibly imagine. And so this film deals with that instead of just giving you that story (laughs) straight, as it were, (laughs) um, they throw in a lot of very lush and lavish kind of jukebox musical type mm-hmm. numbers, but also these very dreamily shot, very consciously arty, bigger and bigger flourishes. They clearly are in love with their own costume department. Sure. In the every movie like this has to have over the closing credits uh, the side by side of reality versus uh, versus movie, and you can tell they love their costume department yeah. because they are recreating scenes after scene after scene that we know from Elton John's life. On the whole, there's a little bit of a ceiling for this kind of movie for me. It's still rock and roll biopic. It still is what it is, but it's done in a very, very flashy and fun, very appropriately decadent way that on balance made me enjoy it. Great, because there is something about this film, I agree with you, there's something about this film that makes it indistinguishable from parody. Uh, It's both a rock star biopic and a a satire of the rock star biopic writ large. This is a film that has seen Walk Hard, (laughs) the Dewey Cox story. (laughs) And every time it gets close to a cliche, which it does does. very often, it kind of sails past it. (laughs) Guy, what'd you think? I'm sorry. First of all, Stephen, you want a movie about Elton John to not be in love with its <laughs> costume departments? <laughs> um, show not tell, baby. Yeah. And look, I mean, I it is hard for me to hear you guys call this 
cliched or hack or paint by numbers because it's walk the line that is also Mamma Mia. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is transcendent. I think that it is taking as read all of those points that are belabored in other like rock and roll biopics and saying, yeah, you get that. Let's focus on the flourishes. Let's indulge in the flourishes. Because I think there is a a healthy point to be made. It has been asserted that queer stories can only be told with some degree of fantasy, with some tool to get us inside the head of the person who is performing normalcy for the world and having a very different reaction inside of themselves. And when I realized that this movie was going to have that big sense of play, I was really excited. It is the thing that was missing from Bohemian Rhapsody, and it made it feel like it was truly a movie about Elton John. Right, right. I mean, these cliches are hardwired into the genre. You've got the headline montage, the song number one on the charts, that that <laughs> montage, the somebody saying, this song will never work, the drugs, the sex, the whole price of fame meal kit uh, that you can just get delivered. Uh, but by leaning into those cliches in the way that this film does and turning it into an honest-to-God musical, you're not reproducing music tracks. You are interpreting these songs, and they are inflection points to express emotion the way they are in musicals. Uh, really work for me. Yeah, I also, uh, this would be a good time to bring up how strong a performance is at the center of this movie. I think Taron Egerton is terrific as Elton John. And I think this is where you start to get into some of the comparisons to Bohemian Rhapsody. Rami Malek is a terrific actor, but the choice to put him in prosthetic teeth and have him kind of pantomiming Freddie Mercury and trying to reproduce exactly what Freddie Mercury did, how Freddie Mercury did it, except for the singing, this is a much looser interpretation of Elton John in some ways. Taron Edgerton does not look that much like Elton John. He doesn't have, speaking as a man with a round nose and gap teeth, (laughs) I watched Taron Edgerton and thought, that man does not have a round nose or, or a gap in his front teeth. Yet, he doesn't need to. They didn't need to put him in gap tooth prosthetics or round out his nose to make him seem like Elton John. And his voice is not a perfect simulacrum of Elton John either, but he carries himself as Elton John in really, really effective ways, both in the performance scenes and just acting as Elton John through all those highs and lows. Yeah, It is weird that we have made rock biopics a Oscar genre that we love. It is weird that we put actors through the paces of having to reinterpret these extremely charismatic performers from a thing that they don't do. And so much of the time, it does just become like Rami Malek talking to us through too many teeth. We've all seen Kingsman. Taron Edgerton has charisma. Mm -hmm. Like, he was slathering it all over the screen the entire time, and it just let you fall in love with the movie. It was, again, I'm going to say, this is a Mamma Mia. I mean, it is not as sparkly and campy as that, but the fact that he was clearly having a good time performing made you fall in love with what was happening. Yeah, thank you for using the, the C word, campy. Glenn, our dear friend Joel Kim Booster had the best line about the Met Ball, which was, less fashion and make it party store, more party store and make it fashion. <laughs> and this movie is party store but make it fashion. Absolutely. Like, everything that you guys are saying about it's just sort of like hitting the points that it's supposed to, that's sort of like, yeah, we know what this is. 
but like give it sparkle and elan, and this movie does that. Well, it's necessary because just as every rock star biopic does, when it hits the middle, it really sags in the middle, I yeah. think. Once once Elton John, the character, becomes such a pill that he's just unpleasant and a little bit boring mm-hmm. to be around, the way somebody on that many drugs can be a little boring to be around, that's kind of, it kind of lined up. Uh, I was just as tired of, of that character, but I, I mean, I, I still liked the performance throughout. Let's go over those Bohemian Rhapsody inevitable comparisons, because you have at the center a closeted, queer, substance-abusing rock star, a price-of-fame narrative arc, time period overlaps, country of origins the same, UK, character in common John Reed, who was played yeah. in Bohemian Rhapsody by Aidan Gillen and in Rocketman by Richard Madden, both from Game of Thrones. It yeah. just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. <laughs> and of course, the director, Dexter Fletcher, who was the director who kind of came in and batted cleanup <laughs> on Bohemian Rhapsody when Brian Singer left before the end of principal photography. So much about these two films yeah. are similar, and yet they feel fundamentally different. The way I interpret it is that I didn't feel like the scene was ending and somebody was turning to the camera and saying, no homo, though, every time, as I did in Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Which is weird, because Bohemian Rhapsody had, like, a gay director for over half of it. Right. You would think that there would be less of that fear. I think what they were doing is they were trying to make Bohemian Rhapsody a four-quadrant hit, something that would be all things to all people, so that the homophobes wouldn't get squeamish. And this film is very upfront about its sexuality in a kind of a bracing way, not in a way that felt gratuitous to me, but it does earn its R rating. It does. There's there's also so much more directorial artistry in this movie as opposed to Bohemian Rhapsody, which, I mean, I think, unfortunately, I was not a Bohemian Rhapsody fan. It was a four-quadrant hit. Yeah. It was a massive, massive, massive hit. This feels like it is going to, you know, hit its audience and it's doing, you know, it did okay on its opening weekend. But I'm I'm a little bummed. Like, if one of these two movies had to be a gigantic, gigantic hit, I really wish it had been this one. Yeah. It shows the difference you get when you have a live queer performer who has enough power. You know, um, Elton John's husband, David, was one of the producers on the film. When you have queer voices who, who can actually participate in how the movie is made, it gives you a less, a somewhat less cartoonish rendering of what queer lives are like. My niece graduated this weekend. I saw it in my hometown, a little farm town in Northern California, and seeing that much gay sex going on uh, in my hometown theater was like, cool. (laughs) But let us not behave as though this movie um, is, you know, completely chill with homosexuality. Basically, both in Bohemian Rhapsody and this movie, the primary relationship that is shown is sort of a manipulative, bad gay male relationship that takes advantage of our beloved hero. And it's something that I have seen in a growing number of works of art about gay men's lives, that they spend the whole time focusing on this bad dude who got him into drugs and bad kinds of sex. And then in the end of the movie, in a coda or in text, we say, and then there was a good relationship, but we don't know what that looks like. I did have that reaction to this movie, too. And also, Guy, you said earlier in this discussion, you said, show not tell, baby. And the amount of gay sex shown in this video, first of all, it is a very, very, very quick cutaway. It is this one relationship that is bad. And then late in the movie, uh, Taron Edgerton says something along, and I'm going to paraphrase for this family podcast, I had sex with everything that moved. Mm -hmm. Footage not found. Yeah, right. You know, you don't really see him 
dating anybody else, sleeping with anybody else over the course of this movie, at that point, all the sex really has been elided right out of the film. So as queer as this movie felt, it still leaves almost all that stuff right out. Also, it, it's a movie about gay life in the 1970s and 80s where HIV and AIDS don't exist. Yeah. Right. It's also mentioned in the coda for the first time. Right. Yes. Yeah. You referred to it earlier, Stephen, the drug orgy that is this film's dream ballet. Right. Uh, it's very artistically shot, but it is made to represent rock bottom. It is made to right. represent the most degraded state of being when, you know, drug orgies are a thing. You know, <laughs> people have drug orgies. And the thing is, is he does say, and I enjoyed every minute of it in the movie. And I, I really liked that. I thought that that was something of a redemption from the cliches. Right. Exactly. That's an important point. Let's talk about Bryce Dallas Howard, who plays uh, young Elton John's mother, uh, doing an accent, yeah. uh, doing an accent very hard. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I mean, with consistency, anytime I go to a movie and I say to myself, why is Jessica Chastain so bad in this? Um, moments later, I'm like, oh, it's Bryce Dallas Howard. And she's essentially playing the same character that she played in The Help, sort of like an older version of it, a a blousy gorgon of judgment smoking a cigarette. Um, but this is a movie about Elton John. Honestly, you need to see the blousy gorgon that made him. Yeah, absolutely. But I thought in a movie this campy, you really did need a mid-century diva to worship and abhor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. That brings us to the end of our show. You can follow Guy at Guy Brenham. Thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter, And we will see you all on Friday. After more than 50 years of lies and silence, a witness to the attack on Jim Reeb finally tells the truth about what she saw. I didn't know whether they'd gonna get off or not, but I was glad when they did. Even though they were guilty, and I knew they were guilty, and they knew they were guilty. It's White Lies from NPR. Listen and subscribe now.